I'm at the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. This is the 32nd annual CCSAD hosted by C4 Events. This is where I get my hands on the experts and the professionals in the field of addiction and mental health disorders. So you can have more help, more support, more connection to the information that is going to bring your family back from the brink of destruction, from these destructive habits, these destructive patterns. I'm Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. When my, when, when my mom uh, and the doctors uh, uh, traded the information uh, and the doctors told my mom that I was this this new thing that they had discovered called ADHD. This was in the 70s, and my mom was learning about it. Uh, both my mom and my uh, um, my my the pediatrician I was going to um, were pretty progressive. And my mom ended up with a book that I remember seeing laying around the house as a kid um, called "If You Love Me, Don't Feed Me Junk." And the doctor, even even there in the late 70s and early 80s, the, my mom's doc, my doctor was counseling my mom on one of the things that was affecting me as a kid with ADHD was my diet. And my mom really made a point to um, look and my, my mom won't be mad at me for saying this. I hope not. And if so, mom, I'm sorry. I love you. Um, she did not like cooking. She was, she was, that was not her favorite part of the day. And she wasn't a bad cook. That is not what I'm saying. Mom, you did great meals. They were straight out of the Betty Crocker cookbook. Every meal was a meat and a, and a vegetable and a salad. We did not have dessert. There was no sugar in the house. Um, but our knowledge about diet and, and that has changed so much. But what remains true is that the stuff these kids are putting in their bodies is affecting their brain. Um, at Fire Mountain, at our facility, we have a, a highly controlled diet. It's very important what we're feeding your kids. But then the kids will go on pass and they'll go on break. And the first place they go is a very famous coffee chain. And they're getting a double, triple, grande, espresso latte mocha with an extra shot and some whipped cream on top. Mm -hmm. And that one, <laughs> that one stop can undo so much. I have uh, David Wiss, who is a dietitian. He is partway through his, we're gonna call it a doctorate. You're, you're gonna be a doctor yes, here soon. a couple of years, and halfway through. Halfway through, and it is specifically um, you're studying nutrition for the addict and nutrition for mental health. Mm. Talk a little bit more about yourself. And David, I want to know how you ended up doing what you do. What's your, what's your stake in all this? Yeah, thank you. It's exciting to be here. And so great to learn more about your facility. I, I'm a dietitian in Los Angeles. I'm the founder of Nutrition and Recovery. We launched in 2012 to bring uh, this message of nutrition for mental health to people and to facilities and to get the word out that nutrition just isn't about calories. It's profound information that we send to our brains and to our guts on a daily basis. It has the potential to change the bacteria that live inside of us and to cause genes to express on and off. And nutrition is way more complicated than most people ever imagine. And this information is finally getting out there to the world and I get to be on the forefront of it. And after working for many years in private practice with individuals, groups, uh, I have gone back to school to get my PhD at UCLA in public health 
And I'll be honest with you, this concept of nutrition for mental health is not yet mainstream. No, so it's not. It's catching on. And I'm part of those efforts. So it's really good to chat a little bit about the research and the work that I'm doing uh, here today. You know, we can go back there. One of the, one of the greatest movies about recovery and addiction uh, that, that was out in the 90s um, was Clean and Sober with Michael Keaton. Mm -hmm. And there was a scene in there where uh, they're all in the food line and they're grabbing these desserts off. And, and they talk about how they're trying to fatten up heroin addicts and mm -hmm. cocaine addicts and stuff like that. And that's some pretty old school stuff. Right. But to this day, you can go to any 12-step meeting anywhere in the world, and there are three, three items that people can put in their mouth there. Donuts or cookies, coffee, and cigarettes. Mm -hmm. That's what you see people at a 12-step. But now they've also added monsters. You'll see people standing oh, yeah. outside talking about how they're so glad they're not on heroin and cocaine, mm -hmm. and they're downing a monster while they're smoking a cigarette. Mm -hmm. We really don't know. And, and more to that point, modern medical doctors in med school, how much nutrition is a part of their curriculum? How much is nutrition part of their curriculum? This is still not mainstream. That's right. So, so talk about why you're doing, uh, uh, not, not why you're doing this, but talk about what you're doing to try to help bring this forward into the mainstream. Yeah, thank you. And I'm, I'm, I'm certainly passionate about it um, from, you know, a personal as well as professional lens. Um, and, and you, you know, I, I think that um, the point you made about medical doctors is very important. However, you know, there's a lot of people that practice nutrition out there and getting the right people to uh, carry out the right message to the right population makes a difference. Um, so uh, I've always been a promoter of the role of the registered dietitian nutritionist. Uh, that's my kind of training. Um, but I, I do believe strongly that we can uh, uh, talk about nutrition in entirely new ways that will reach people. I think there's an expectancy from people that when they getting taught about nutrition, what they're going to hear. They're going to be taught about fruits and vegetables. They're going to be taught about calories. They're going to be taught about certain You're going to tell me I have to go on a diet. Right, exactly. Yeah. So just the terminology alone starts to really, really matter. And so when we start to use new language and talk about nutrition for your brain, nutrition for your mood, nutrition for your sleep, nutrition for your clarity of mind, for your mental health, people are really starting to, to perk up. A lot of the research I've done has been on food addiction. I know it's a uh, controversial topic. Uh, has a lot of charge and what does it really mean? Who is it pointing toward? But one of the biggest issues and discussion that comes up and you brought it up already is like what to do in early recovery when the dopamine sources are no longer uh, accessible through drugs and alcohol. Right. The needs aren't being met. The brain is starving for its dopamine That's release. Right. So caffeine, nicotine, sugar, right. highly palatable foods, behavioral addictions, et cetera. And the old wisdom was Let's let people do whatever they want. Lesser there. two evils. Yeah, right. First things first and let them do their thing. <laughs> and I do see the wisdom in all of that. But I've also come to realize that sometimes earlier interventions can make a difference. And you made the great point is when it comes in as like we're taking something away from you, yeah. it feels punitive. And the language around it makes people not interested. But when you come in like, yo, I've got something really exciting to offer you, something new some new considerations to actually use nutrition to change what's going on at the gastrointestinal level, which over time will affect your brain. 
So let's we're gonna let's get into the gut here yeah. in just a second. But what I want parents to hear out of the gate, so they can start resting easy, is that yeah, you know what, your kid for the past year, while they've been in high school and they've been blowing their lunch money at Taco Bell and drinking monsters and smoking cigarettes, and they've got drug problems and their sleep problems and there's depression, anxiety problems, and stuff like that. They end up in a facility like mine, and they hear during the tour and intake about our diet, and the kids are like, huh, and the parents are like, oh boy, I wonder what's gonna happen. Two weeks. Mm -hmm. In two weeks, the kids love the food. Mm -hmm. When we have kids eating salmon and asking for seconds mm -hmm. because that healthy fat is getting into their brains, you know, like I need parents to know the kids don't complain at the facility. They complain to the parents because the parents are going to collapse and take them to. That's right. No matter how bad we know fast food is, David, the longest line at the airport is not security. It's at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And, and, this is, this is, we still, we're still taking the easy way out. Mm -hmm. So now let's go into the gut because yeah. you can answer the question. Why is it that I'm hearing that my gut is another brain? What the hell does that mean? Yes. So thank you. There are trillions of microorganisms that live inside of our gastrointestinal tract, you know, which really starts at the mouth and goes all the way to the excretion pathways. And, uh, it totals somewhere between two and five pounds. So uh, scientists have started to call it a second brain because it's its own organ. There's more bacterial cells inside of us than there are human cells. Some people have even go as far as to say that we're more bacteria than we are human. So with this new data, it started to suggest that the colonization of bacteria that starts in the first two years and develops over our life course has significant implications for various forms of health and disease. There's a lot of research going on right now about autism. There's research about Parkinson's. And where I'm interested is what about uh, gastrointestinal health and alcohol as well as drugs? Uh, there's new data that a lot of uh, uh, medications affect bacteria. It's all coming to the light right now in ways that are making unanswered questions answerable. And so uh, the second brain is what we call it. Um, there are bi-directional pathways between the gut and the brain. It involves a large nerve called the vagus nerve. There's a pathway called the HPA axis, and we don't need to get all super technical, but we know now that the brain talks to the gut and the gut talks to the brain and it can be through both uh, portal circulation, the blood, through bacterial signaling. We know that bacteria produces neurotransmitters. 90% of the serotonin that's used by our brain is produced in the gut. Wow. 50% of 90%? dopamine. 90%? Yeah. And what you just said, dopamine is 50%? 50% has an intestinal source. So what types of foods can kill the, the, the serotonin and the dopamine in the gut? Yeah, so those aren't fully answered questions yet. We do know that if the right kind of bacteria aren't present, then we won't get a proper conversion from amino acids to neurotransmitters. So wow. a lot of the processed foods that are out there on the market today, they do two main things. One is they remove stuff. So they remove fibers. Turns out that the healthy gut that we want to achieve is dependent on a higher fiber diet. Our ancestors used to eat 50 to 100 grams of fiber per day. Standard American diet these days is closer to 15 grams. So we want to get our, uh, our family members and our loved ones up to closer to 30 grams of fiber per day because the bacteria that live inside of us thrive and survive on that fiber. 
So it's not just about, oh, you want to have a regular bowel movement. Yeah, I want to poop better. Right. Fiber's <laughs> way more than that. And that's what I mean by talking wow. about nutrition in a new way. Instead of just saying, oh, fiber's for your poop, we say fiber is the actual food that the microbes that live inside of you need to eat and thrive on so that they can produce the neurotransmitters that we need in our brain. One of the big arguments that's, that's been going on for a while is about fruit sugar. That it's just sugar and you're just sugar. And, and and especially around bananas. Bananas seem to like take the hit huge in the past four or five years. Can you can you put something to rest? Is is fruit sugar an okay sugar as long as I'm eating fruit with it? Yeah, I think that uh, this conception that sugar that comes in fruit is problematic is one of the biggest misconceptions out there, right? We know that refined sugars that have been added to foods or in their pure concentrated, isolated forms are problematic. And the reason is because they have no fiber and they have no polyphenols, which are the antioxidants. But when you take something like bananas, you have uh, sugar, but it's in a matrix of fiber and vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants that have a synergistic beneficial effect that might counter affect any of the potential negatives associated with fruit sugar. All right. So I'm a parent. I got a 16 year old kid who could barely talk to me without rolling their eyes. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, they, I know they're, they're, they're drinking monsters. I see the cans. I clean out the backpack and it, it maybe, maybe this kid's not doing drugs. Maybe they're not there yet, but I'm noticing they're too much time, screen time and stuff. I'm seeing some grades slip. I'm getting worried and stuff like that. And my, my immediate reaction is to go to their thought process. They're not thinking right. They're making bad decisions. They're making bad choices. It's the friends they're hanging out with. And I don't really have the ability to control many of those things. Mm. But parents seem to forget that they can like literally control what the kid is having for lunch. And it's mm. starting with what the parent is buying at the store. Mm -hmm. So let's, can we, can we do, is it fair to ask you, David, what are some basics that we can, that, that, that the kid would like to eat that, yeah. that is going to fulfill those comfort food yes. requirements, yes. but I'm still know that, that my kid's actually doing okay. Yeah. I think, I think working with, you know, adolescents and this younger population that we're interested in, one of the keys to a successful nutrition intervention is bringing in the hands-on piece, right? It's like actually getting them involved a little bit um, in, in, in the kitchen. So for example, if you just serve someone quinoa and you say this is quinoa right and it's healthy for it's you it's healthy for you now, I, now you just told me i'm going on a diet is that's what right. you just said that's right that's <laughs> right and it feels like oh i'd much rather have you know the the pasta because that's what i'm used yeah, to. yeah it's a consequence exactly exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. but when it's framed as let's uh think about a way that we can uh, make this together sometimes i like to cook whole grains in a bone broth right so it has a lot of flavor and yeah, some yeah, of that yeah. collagen protein or making it uh, uh, with like a, as a stir fry with some beans and throwing in, cracking an egg on it and making dishes that are high in flavor, but also high in fiber. Whole grains and beans are the best sources of fiber. Everyone knows fruits and vegetables and also nuts and seeds less so, but I try to get my uh, younger crowd cooking their own beans and their own grains and getting excited about them as a dish or a main part of the meal. Okay, so question about the cooking piece yeah. because this is where a lot of parents are gonna put up uh, a block, a defensive piece mm. where you know, look, they're working two jobs. They're a single parent. They're 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 you know trying to make mortgage, trying to do the bills and stuff like that. So so let's just act, ask the question outright so the parents can once and for all 
have some truth. Is there a non-home-cooked meal substitute for something that's going to nurture instead of take away? Yeah, it's such a great question because from a practical standpoint, not everyone is going to get into cooking, right? Like we live in the era I'm not. My, 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 my wife and I want to get into cooking so badly. We were watching videos on how to make a, a, a good Caesar salad. Yeah. I love Caesar yeah. salad. So we're watching this and we're both watching this. We just kind of fade away from it going, are we really going to do this? Totally, <laughs> totally. I'm of the opinion that... Uh, when, when we're completely disempowered in the kitchen, we have to rely on the food industry. We have to rely on uh, food delivery and the restaurants. And that can be great for some people because convenience wins, right? right? But with other people, what you end up doing is exposing yourself to more sugar, more salt, more dressings, and more of the things that make the brain's dopamine system Fire. They're not going to use the healthy fats in the store. They're going to use the cheap fats. That's right. They're going to use the oil that they can buy in bulk for a, a, a better price, right? right? So you're going to get more flavor, less of the essential fatty acids that you want, the omega-3s. And I think the consequence of that is not just about the immediate effect of the meal and the lack of nutrition in the single meal, but over the lifespan when you eat all commercialized food, like you were talking about the fast food chains and the coffee things, it teaches the brain what food is supposed to taste like. And then oh, it creates wow. a more significant barrier to nutrition interventions later on. Because the truth is, is that home cooked nutritional food is freaking amazing tasting. That's right. But to compare that to a Big Mac that was that I give them some money and they hand it back to me and it's in there and God knows what other chemicals are in there. Mm -hmm. I, well, okay, maybe not God. David, what other <laughs> chemicals are in these foods that are that are actually stimulating my body and making it worse not better? Yeah, so they'll like I said remove fiber so that the bread for example is just like, you know, white flour and then they'll add binders, emulsifiers, things to make it preserved and then they add little small amounts of sugars and salts and oils to make them more palatable. So it's a combination of like making them have longer shelf life and making them taste better at the same time. And the secret ingredients are always sugar, salt, and fat, right? Those are the secret ingredients to make food that's been processed taste more delicious. Now, sugar, salt, and fat in and of itself in a home-cooked meal is does remarkable things. That's Hel right. But, but that being a replacement for fiber and the healthy vitamins that have been stripped, that's where we come up to an issue. That's right. You At a home-cooked meal, you're still going to use good oils and put salt on it and make it all delicious, but it's not going to be tested in some huge laboratory where they've maximized the reward and the pleasure mechanisms from food. You know, like when they roll out a new soda or something, yeah, yeah. they test the amount of sugar that should be in there by the milligram. They, they calculate the bliss point where they, the brain receives the most possible pleasure. And it's all designed to maximize allure, which is maximizing profits. Maximizing so profit. That's what it boils down to. The food companies are out to maximize profits, not maximize nutrition. When you empower yourself with the ability to learn how to kind of create some of your own meals at home, you end up being able to maximize nutrition. And that's one of the key things that I think is missing in our society as a whole. 
It's hard to do an early recovery, though. Yeah, it, it is. It is. So now let's talk about some of the stuff, uh, and, you know, and then we'll, then we'll get back to, to parents' to-dos mm-hmm. with their kids who are in early recovery or heading towards the need for recovery mm-hmm. because there's a preventative piece I, w- I, want, I want parents to have. Uh, but uh, holy moly, um, should my kid be paleo? Should I be paleo? Mm. And this this paleo thing. Um, and then what's the other one that's kind of like paleo? A keto. Keto. Like like is this just another, uh, just another one? Yeah, I I think what's true about both of those is that we live in the era of refined carbohydrates, and people overconsume refined carbohydrates in the form of added sugars, white flours. Uh, crackers, cookies, and when they go onto one of those regimens, paleo or keto, they're essentially cutting out a lot of those refined carbohydrates. Right. However, uh, whole grain carbohydrates from farro, barley, buckwheat that are high in fiber that gut bacteria love and thrive on should not be demonized to that same extent. But the problem with them is that you got to cook them, you got to make them. So I, I, I'm not in the promotion of any of those kind of known especially not the extreme diets especially for someone in early recovery yeah, doing yeah, anything yeah. that's extreme in the dietary that's thing, powerful to say yeah, yeah. Is, okay. is, is not uh, necessarily recommended you want to reduce nutritional extremes eat on a regular basis try to get all the different food groups um and but people that are uh uh in early recovery or contemplating it might even be more likely to want to try those things because they're looking for ways. Well, there's also, and and let's be honest, when someone in early recovery starts to feel good, you Mm -hmm. know, they're two months in, they're five months in and they're like, man, I think I might like, I think I got this, Mm -hmm. which is a dangerous thinking process. But then they're like, you know what? I also need to clean up my diet. I'm going to go to the gym every day. And next thing you know, we got to exercise anorexia taking place, you know, because the addict is the addict because now they're getting dopamine at the gym, blah, blah, blah. Totally. All right. So, so you talked about bone broth, putting a grain in bone broth and Mm -hmm. cooking it there to get a lot of nutrients and stuff. So vegetarianism, um, I'm all, I'm all, I'm all for it. I don't, promote it i think that having a good amount of protein in early recovery is really really important yeah of course and that going too low there can create problems but the promotion of more plants means more phytochemicals more fibers i am all for it okay so now let's let's as we go back to talking about um you know what to do in early recovery or prevention of uh deeper addictions Mm -hmm. um you, you just talked about, you know, extreme things causing more problems. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about relapse? Uh, relapse, certainly. You mentioned uh, disordered eating, yeah, right? That's yeah, definitely yeah. a known risk factor when people get really, really heightened concern around their body. Hypervigilance. Yes. I yeah. think body image issues are an important thing that are not talked about, especially with our, you know, our male friends right people think it's a female issue and it's not hey we had he-man dolls as kids i don't think he had any body fat that's right you know that's right it's (laughs) just great in a loincloth too i don't know if i do i I saw on a shirt it's just as hard to be ken as it is to be barbie right and i and i and i and i like that a lot but i think when you have neurochemical sensitivity in the first place and you cut out an entire macronutrient like carbohydrates or something of that nature you're running the risk of playing with neurochemical levels. Is it because de- that, 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 that the need fulfillment uh, is so powerful that any depletion is going to create 
a, a, a drive for compensation? That's a great question. Yeah, it's a good research question. What is it about, you know, our friends in early recovery and, and diet, you know, that needs to be panned out? And at the end of the day, I'm always careful about making blanket statements yeah. because everyone's different. People have different metabolic health, different gut health, different genes. So I do believe that getting one-on-one -on -one support can be really, really important. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dad of a daughter who's, you know, a lot of time in her room, doing a lot of homework, spending a lot of time on social media and stuff like that. Um, I want to bring her some food because I love her. Uh, chicken sticks in the microwave are quick and easy. What can I replace that with that's going to start and still fulfill and she's going to feel I guess the word is satiated. Mm. You know, she's going to feel whatever she feels as a teen girl. Yes. And she's going to roll her eyes no matter what I bring her, even if it's with an I love you and keys to a new car. She sure. still hates me. She's sure. in, But but if I'm playing the long game with my kid, yeah. what, what can I bring instead? One really hot item right now that I've been using a lot and teaching is they're, they're actually making pasta now out of beans. Bean pasta. So they use either chickpeas or yeah. black beans or lentils, and you can make a pasta dish uh, in a few minutes, the same as you would, that has a lot of protein, a lot of fiber, uh, Parmesan cheese, make a little sauce, throw little bits of vegetables in there, put a little protein on top, and it comes across as like a familiar kind of dish, but you've got a lot more uh, fiber and a lot more nutrients in there. I'm having a lot of success with bean pasta. Okay, uh, ramen is another one, and and it, what is what is the addictive nature of the ramen? And not just convenience, because I I don't buy that one. But is it just the amount of sodium? Because it's a tremendous amount. It's a lot of sodium, but what we're also dealing with is those noodles. They're rapidly ab absorbing, so they spike the blood sugar pretty oh. quickly, right? Okay. Yeah. Which and is which is that that's addictive behavior. If yes. we if we're telling our kids you need to eat healthy, but then there's only ramen in the thing, and they're having a a a blood sugar That's spike right. they might as well drink that's right because is is now wait a second i i said that alcohol and blood sugar levels such a great question i actually have a uh, a paper coming out in uh, uh next month or so believe it or not alcohol has a lowering effect on blood sugar in the big picture in the kind of more short term it is a very strange thing that science hasn't fully elucidated but if you look at hemoglobin a1c which is the major kind of diagnostic tool for diabetes the more alcohol someone consumes the lower their blood sugar typically their a1c is and it's it has to do with uh, uh, a lot of potential factors but it's not uh, necessarily immediate it's oftentimes the next day so people that have a lot of alcohol can have elevated blood sugar, but then it will be uh, matched with rebound hypoglycemia later on or the next day. Does that cause a craving yes. to drink? Oh my God. And it causes, it leads to uh, more need for refined carbohydrates to bring it back up. So blood sugar stabilization is one of the goals of using uh, nutrition as an intervention tool. All right, the best quick breakfast for a kid to start the day. And I said quick because, you know, a home cooked yeah. eggs and blah, blah, Agreed. blah, blah, blah is, is asking a lot, it but is. I want this kid to eat before they leave. And it's the number one meal they skip because yep. they want to sleep more. I think uh, in terms of quick smoothie takes 
gets the win, right? You're able to mix in blueberries and a banana and throw in some, some greens. Green. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, sneak yeah. the greens in and you can get in like flax seeds, different nut seeds, nut butters. Is it okay to use that green powdery stuff that that is all those, you know, n- green nutrients and stuff, but it's not, I'm not throwing kale yeah. into a blender. I think it's better than nothing, but it doesn't okay. compete with okay. kale and spinach in its kind of fresh form. Okay. But here's a pro tip. If you make the smoothie a little bit thicker, as opposed to very drinkable, you make it with less liquid, you can actually pour it into a bowl and make a smoothie bowl and then top it with some coconut flakes or some granola or some different nuts and see some crunchy things. And then it eats like a smoothie bowl. And that can actually feel a little bit more fun and exciting. And it has the textures of crunch rather than just drinking it. So that the kid doesn't go on Google and tell the parents they're full of crap. Mm. Is there a... Um, is there any selling point to kids about their skin and complexion and stuff and the uh, the healthier food? Or are we just dealing with an adolescent, you know, oily skin, that type of thing? Yeah, if you think about it, the skin is the last place that the biology manifests. If you think about the gut, by the way, the gut's inside of us, but it's not fully inside of us. It's actually external. We think about it as being yeah. inside of us, but it's it's not actually in our bloodstream per se it's an external reservoir that's inside of our body interestingly wow so when we eat food we're actually absorbing it through the gastrointestinal uh we're getting things into the blood the blood carries to different parts of the body organs brains etc the skin is actually the last place where we see signs and symptoms so one thing i do want to say about nutrition that's important to say is that nutrition is slow it's not something that you see the effect of in a day or in a week, right? People start eating smoothies and uh, making higher fiber foods and they can do it for three days and report not feeling all that much different. Any different whatsoever. And so the case that in their mind is that I'm going back to the things that I enjoy because this is torture. The reality is, is nutrition affects us over the life course, right? And that over long periods of time, it changes us at the cellular and microbial levels. And I think once people hear that, it's much more realistic and practical, right? Is that we're going to think about this as something you're going to be engaging in for the rest of your, you know, moving forward, as opposed to something that you're going to do really acutely that's going to end and that you're going to change. You know, David, I I have to say, like you sat down and and so many things flood in and then you, you saw my wife, you know, drop some questions on the table and, and you just swung with everything like and everyone was a swing for the fence like, you're brilliant man and then you start going off into your scientific stuff and i'm like what the iab one chemoglobin Thank stuff you. so this is this is amazing stuff and look it is the the the, the nutrition the diet it is the long game mm-hmm. and it does feel like a punishment out of the gate and i have to say to parents that the kids are going to eat what's in the cabinets and if you're if you're going to give them money to go buy um, their own food, they're not going to they're not going to buy the stuff that you want them to buy mm. because you said it, you know, that smoothie thing three days later of eating those smoothies, they're not going to feel any different. Mm. But the Big Mac will make you feel different right now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's affecting your brain chemistry instantly. Those right. chips when I, at night, when I have those chip cravings, I know that I got a brain chemistry issue taking place. Mm. 
and three days of eating smoothies doesn't make my night things go away. Mm-hmm. Um, is what is anything else about nutrition and neurotransmitters? Anything else about nutrition, neurotransmitters? These things, the these things that are the messages. These things that food and drug drugs copy. Mm-hmm. And then once the drugs have, you know, the the example is. Marijuana copies anandamide. Anandamide is a neuromodulator. It's what calms me down after high exertion. Marijuana makes me think that I'm getting tons of, of anandamide dumped into my system. Mm-hmm. So my brain stops producing anandamide and then I can't calm down after high exertion. Um, how how does nutrition affect the neurotransmitters? Yeah, great Great question. I think there's one key point which is worth making is that there's a big difference between neurotransmitter activity and neurotransmitter production, right? So when you think oh, about wow. sure, sure. when you think about a, a, a Big Mac, your example, or some other fast food, it's associated with the anticipation of flavor. There's a dopamine response associated with the highly palatable food, and it's tricking the brain into thinking that it's getting something that's survival promoting. Whereas some of the other foods, wow. some of the other foods that we want to uh, essentially encourage people to eat, some of the less dopamine activity stimulating foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, seeds, fatty fish, etc., they don't promote a lot of immediate dopamine activity from the addiction standpoint. But over the long term, they promote neurotransmitter production by way of increasing the environment in the gut that we want. And over longer periods of time, higher levels of neurotransmitter production lead to less of a need for immediate focused behaviors that are associated with neurotransmitter activity. What a fantastic answer. Mm. Holy mackerel. Okay, I talk about how parents can get in touch with you directly because you're, 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 answering questions and you're creating new ones that we didn't have time to but i just want to say i want to do a longer show with you uh not not just this one here i want us to connect and do a, a whole series about nutrition i mean Got this it. is this is phenomenal awesome so so how can parents get in touch with you yeah the best way is to find me on uh, my website which is nutritioninrecovery.com that's nutrition i n recovery.com and on the website there's lots of links to videos that we've created journal articles that we've published in the peer-reviewed space. Uh, There's a contact form where you can reach out to me. I do one-on-one with people all over the world. Uh, We have nutrition curriculum that's available for different facilities. And uh, Instagram, all those things are all there on the- uh, The big five. They're all there. Okay. And so let's and, stay in touch. An email that they can they can connect with you directly. Yeah, uh, I'll give it to you. David A. Wiss, W-I-S-S, at nutritioninrecovery.com. And that's actually all over the website as well. So please visit the website. There's a newsletter that I put out one or two times a month, which just summarizes all the stuff that I'm doing and puts out some free content. Fantastic. It, you, you're a great guest. This is great. I want to I want to do more uh, more shows with you. Let's go. Okay, D- David, thank you so much. Thanks for helping out the parents here on Beyond Risk and Back. You got it. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you so much, parents, for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. I'd like to thank CCSAD for their support and the opportunity to interview all of these amazing guests for this series. 
If you have seen Beyond Risk and Back on any of the five major social media sites, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. Your Cause Consulting specializes in marketing companies that have something going on bigger than just running their business. They have a cause. If you'd like to contact Your Cause Consulting, go to yourcauseconsulting at gmail.com. All the sound and the music was engineered and created by Deepin Productions. To reach Deepin Productions, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com. This is Aaron Huey. Parents, remember to take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, and your children third. In that way, we do our best work with our children. We'll talk again soon.